program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The human mind, body, emotions, and spirit are more powerful than anyone can imagine, and we can learn to use them in new and powerful ways to create the life we've always dreamed of. On our program today, with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon, we'll address who you are, how to come to know what you believe and why, how to accept and love yourself, and how you can make changes that help you create the empowered, happy, successful life you want. Now, here's your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome to the Self-Improvement Show. We're broadcasting today, as always, from Fountain Hills, Arizona. And I'm so delighted to be able to welcome you to the show today. I think we have something extremely special. So you might even want to get a pen and paper. You may want to take some notes. You may want to jot some ideas to share with people that you know are experiencing what we're going to be talking about between fathers and sons. This show is brought to you by Valenta Slim Roast Coffee. This week, I made it to 31 pounds lost. And at my age, that's a miracle. Trust me, that's a miracle. No restrictive diet. It's great coffee, and it works. If you want to know more about it, go to the Self-Improvement blog and take a look. While you're at the blog, read the bios, the book review, and look at the pictures of today's guest. Yes, that's plural, because we have two. Uh, And while you're there, don't forget to watch the videos in the right sidebar. Wait till after the show for that, huh? Being a parent is perhaps the most difficult job we're presented with in our lifetime, and for many of us, we consider it the most important one. There are books, of course, about parenting, but to me, it seems like each child should come out with a user's manual strapped to him, (laughs) and unlike the other manuals we get, we should read this one. In my lifetime... A long time ago, in the beginning of my lifetime, the accepted approach to parenting was vastly different from what it is today, and and I think that's probably a really good thing. Often, there's conflict. Today, we're going to talk about conflict between fathers and sons. Sometimes the conflict is deep and long, long long-lasting. Sometimes the rift is healed, and sometimes it is not. I had a dear male friend who was adamant in saying that women cannot raise boys to be men, that only men can. I bristled at the time, but I'm beginning to understand what he meant, Uh, and I think I have to agree with him. Today, we're going to talk to Sam Keen and his son Gifford, who co-authored a book about their relationship, and I think many of you fathers and sons can not only relate to what they have to say, but find healing within its pages. I truly urge you to get this book. Sam Keen is the author of Fire in the Belly and A Baker's Dozen Other Books. 
While not writing or traveling around the world, he lectures and leads seminars on a wide variety of topics. His biography is vast and has multiple themes, and we could use a whole show just for that, but today we won't do that. He lives on his farm in the hills above Sonoma, California. Gifford Keene has had careers as a software executive, a carpenter, and a real estate investor. He's the father of a teenage son and daughter and lives with his wife in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where he writes, meditates, practices yoga, and takes long walks in the high country, and I'm jealous. (laughs) Their book is Prodigal Father, Wayward Son, A Roadmap to Reconciliation. And as I said, if you're a father, you're a son, get this book. We're going to start off with that question that some of my guests have come to dread. You know, tell me about yourselves. Who, we're going to start with you, Sam. Who is Sam Keene? Well, that's a difficult question because. Yes, it is. uh, I have gone through many different incarnations from. a young man who wanted to to be a rancher and and a cowboy to a to a young man who wanted to uh, be a professor and I was a professor and I I uh, and I wanted to be a writer and a freelancer and I did that I wrote for Psychology Today and made my living doing <coughs> seminars about uh, helping people get in touch with their own stories. Um, I don't know, there's so many things that I could say about who is Sam Keene. Uh, we could do another book on it, Sam, I, I think. Well, I think as a matter of fact, I've done a book or two on it. So. Uh, good, good. Okay, Gifford, it's your turn. Who's Gifford Keene? Well, when people ask me that dreaded, so what do you do at parties question, I tell them I'm a retired software geek, a reluctant landlord, and an aspiring novelist. But... Um, you know, that really is just scratches the surface. That's what I do. Who am I? You know, I could say I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a meditator. I'm a mountain biker. I'm a yogi. All those things are things I do. And I think that I do them all and have done them all. I mean, I've done a wide range of stuff, mostly because I've been trying to answer that question. Who is Gifford Keene? So I guess I would say... That's who I am. That's somebody who's always seeking for the answer to that question. Who am I and what makes me happy? Somebody asked me that the other day. And and like Gifford, I said, well, he said, are you Sam Keen? And I said, well, I'm becoming him. Oh, I love that. And isn't that a part of the answer? I am becoming. I'm always becoming. I, I like that a lot. In the, in the introduction, I talked about my friend who said women can't raise boys to be men. Give me your take on that, just, you know, off the top of your head. You know, do you think women can raise boys to be men? Well, you know, there, there are all kinds of answers and all kinds of degrees of answer to that. Um, I just returned from South Africa, and one of the things I did there is I went into the prison, Baltimore prison, and I... And I had a session with a bunch of young men. And those young men, 
they had two things. First of all, they wanted to be listened to. They wanted to tell their story. And the second thing was that the story that they had to tell focused around the absence of their fathers, their fathers who weren't there. And so they had learned a lot about how to be a man from the street gangs and and not from their fathers. So I certainly think that uh, there there are things that a that a, a boy needs to learn from his father. He can't learn them from his mother. But, but that's not to say that women, uh, when necessary, can't by themselves raise wonderful sons. They can. But but there's something that, that a boy wants to know from his father. I mean, I there's a whole different him. feel to it. Well, you, you see it in our, in our book that... that uh, uh, when when we came down to really dealing with the, the struggles we had between us, so much of it was that Gifford needed to know things about me that I hadn't told him. And I also needed to know things about him. Well, his mother couldn't have told him that. <laughs> no. That, be, that was between us. Gifford, what about you? Do you think women can raise men, oh. boys be men? It's an odd question, really. It is, I mean, isn't I think it? That, it was um, strange when I heard it. I think one of the things, the first thing that occurs to me is that um, we would have to know what it means to be a man. Ah, yeah, we're going to get there. And I think that, you know, I grew up under the shadow of women's liberation and then feminism. Uh, and that wasn't a very nice place to be <laughs> when I was a teenager in the 70s, right? Um and I, I admire, when my grandfather was dying, um, I asked him what was the biggest change he had seen in his lifetime. I thought he'd say the automobile or something. He said, feminism, I'm all for it. You know, and I think when I look at that, that's one of the greatest changes that has come in my life, too, is the way women's roles have changed in this country and around the world. But I think men have not caught up, right? I think that it has become, in the light of feminism, very unclear what it means to be a man, and that as men, we have not done the work to sort of, uh, we've not done the hard work that the women have done as a culture. So, you know, we'd first have to ask what it would mean to be a man, you know. Um, and, and I'm going to ask you that in a minute. <laughs> and, and, and having me, said We're that, going to talk some about that because I think it's really important. But I want you know, to ask it, Sam this. Sam, you say in the book, and I quote, from the distance of all we have learned in the last generation about the hazards of being born male in this culture, my way of being a father seems bizarre, if not mildly sadistic, but it isn't that simple. My identity as a man was composed of a complex mixture of images, values, and myths about work that I absorbed from my culture and notions about vocation I got from the Calvinist tradition. This pro- this one quote probably brought up more questions to me than we could do in a number of shows. But, but, but the big question is, what do you see as the hazards of being born male in this culture? Hazards. Well, the hazards are many that... That uh, in my generation, I, I was not a bad father. I was I was doing what fathers were supposed to do there, and what men were supposed to do, and that men were supposed to be in charge, and men were supposed to make the money, and men were supposed to make the decisions, 
and uh, we were supposed to be, you know, rough, tough, and hard to bluff. We we were not supposed to really that be that uh, emotional or anything like that. And and you know, I did it. I I made the living, and I did I did all those things. And but that that involved uh, ignoring a lot of time with my family, not not being as not seeking that closeness. In other words, to be a man in our culture. There were certain images and certain things that were important. The first was the warrior image. We yeah. had to we had to be willing uh, to to uh, fight, uh, to prepare ourselves to fight, to kill when necessary, to be killed. That's a, that's a whole part of male identity all around. The second was that I say that in our time we became Homo economicus, not not the Homo sapiens, but we became economic beings. We were defined by the workplace, and that's a very, excuse me, that's a very narrow definition and very, uh, very spiritually crippling. I agree with that absolutely. And 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 the definition of men has shifted, and and we've gone through that whole thing of. You know, you can't be macho anymore. You, you you need to be softer. And then some people get upset because you're softer and you should be tougher. And, you know, I honestly don't even know how you could go about defining what a man is. But how do you define it now? Cliff, Gifford, let's start with you because Sam had the last word on that other one. But I want to hear from both of you. How do you define or describe I'm sorry, say, say again. Hmm? Say again. How do you describe or define what a man is in our culture now? It's very confusing. Well, Socrates said, I think in the Republic, that uh, virtue was uh, telling the truth and paying your debts. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's the beginning of one of those Socratic dialogues. So that's an awful good place to start. You know, especially if you take those things, you know, telling the truth beyond just not lying. I mean, I think that, you know, when my dad talked about the hazards of being male, one of the key characteristics of all those things he talked about being, um, you know, primarily uh, uh, what you do, you know, your profession, being yeah. uh, a, a father who raises his son and shapes him, uh, being a warrior, is that there's a tremendous amount of self-deception involved in all of those. So telling the truth is an awful good start, and not and to yourself and to those people around you. You know, and paying your debts, doing what you say you're going to do. I, you know, my dad raised me with a lot of old-fashioned values about manhood. And a lot of them I really cherish. <laughs> Some of them suck, right? But a lot of my parents <laughs> try to pass on to my children, you know, that your word is your bond, that you, when you make a promise, you keep it. When you shake somebody's hand, that's better than a contract, you know. So you, you keep your promises. And, you know, what those are, if you have a child, then that's a promise, right? That's a promise that you've made whether you meant to or not. So, you know, those are, I guess they're very simple things, and many of them I don't think have changed either since the time I was a boy or, you know, from the time of the ancient Greeks. I think there's another 
uh, thing I would want to add onto that. You know, we we become uh, hypnotized by the wrong questions. So, <laughs> so that one of the things in sort of the men's movement, what's a man? What's a man? What's the definition of a man? Well, see, I and then we got into the thing of a, well, you know, it, does it, does it, am I just masculine or am I masculine and feminine? What what are the what are the you know the qualities? Uh, should I be a little more feminine? Those are both, those are the wrong questions because they don't get you anywhere. The right question is, who am I? Who is Sam Keen? What is Sam Keen to uh, call to become? What is virtue for me? Uh, do I uh, do I am I faithful to my vision of, or am I, or do I betray it? So, see, that's an answerable question, and that's also why uh, this is a lifelong thing. I, more and more, I discover who Sam Keen is and who he isn't. And, and mm. acting on that, uh, acting on that, I find my manhood in a way different than somebody else. I'm not like any other man. I'm not like my son. I'm not like I'm not like George Bush or or okay. uh, who else? <laughs> <laughs> Dick Cheney. Don't go there. <laughs> yeah, don't go there. Right. Uh, yeah. So you know, I have to discover. In that way, see, I say my autobiography and the story that I learned to tell about myself and listen, listening to myself, that's how I answer that question, not by some kind of theory. Or now we have, you know, metasexuals and we have lumbersexuals and we, we have all these, uh, all these cliches uh, about, about men. And don't get, they don't get us very far. Now, I love your answer because each one of us is so vastly different. You know, and I, I talk about that all the time on the self-improvement blog, how important it is to realize who you are as an individual. And, you know, if you lined up five men and five women, each one would have a different description and a different parenting style. And, you know, the thing that boggled my mind when I had my second son was what I did for him didn't work the way it did on the first one. And I learned very soon that they were entirely different people. And, and, you know, it, it would be, to me, really difficult to define what a man is. It's just as difficult to define what a woman is these days. And then well, to find out what the media is telling us is an, another whole thing. Do you remember somebody asked Satchmo, what, what's jazz? And Satchmo says, man, if you don't know, I could never tell you. <laughs> exactly. So I, know, I know when I see a mensch, you know, that was the, that was the, 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 the German-Jewish word about it, somebody who's a really man, and, but he will not look like any other mensch. <laughs> Exactly. You know, I, I, one of the things that you know, I wonder is wh- when we really begin to understand individual differences and, and as things keep shifting in our society. And, you know, Sam, we've lived through some major, major shifts in every area of life. And I have an idea they're going to be even more accelerated in Gifford's era. Um, how do you keep up with that? How do you teach a boy to become a man when everything is shifting? Well, 
you know, the, let, let's get back to the central thesis of our book. Okay. We're going to talk about the book now. Okay. So let's and go. The, 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 the thesis of that is that, that in order to become a man, I need to be initiated by, uh, by, the el- by an elder. But that initiation isn't something magical. It's something very simple in a way. In the men's movement, the men's movement was right in saying that the cry of men was, Dad, where were you? You weren't there for me. Well, I think the new thing is, Dad, who are you? Tell me the stories. I need to know your stories. So that's where Giff and I started. With We realized that a lot of our trouble was just because we told the same old stories all along, and in those stories, uh, I was always the villain and he was always the victim. And then we we didn't get any far, further, so we would fight about that. Then one day, I think Gifford said, Dad, you know, we're, we're not getting anywhere. Let's try something else. Let's try to tell each other different stories. He says, I want to know how you became the man that you are. And I said to him, yeah, I want to know how you became the man that you were. So we learned about manhood from listening, from listening and telling. And not not by some, uh, I didn't check his bank account or uh, or uh, his muscles or anything else. He was a man. I told him my stories. He told me his stories, and that opened up everything. But did you start? To... I, incidentally, let me just finish this. I think it absolutely killed the question of what's a man. I never asked Gifford is is he a man. I never say you know. Do you think I'm manly enough? Those just those questions don't occur. They're so, they're so, you know, one oh one questions. Well, but so a lot of track. people can't answer them. <laughs> they just can't. But so when you started telling them. stories, did did you have the book in mind then, or were you just trying to get to know each other with stories? Well, you know, as I mentioned to you on the phone earlier, I mean, I'm not. Uh, struggling novelist. I've got a, a bunch of novels that have become so close to being published, but not quite. So we were sitting around here one day, my dad was here, and he said, why don't we write a book together? And I said, oh, that's a great idea, you know, because then I could finally get it published, I bet, you know, riding in on your <laughs> coattails, which I had no problem with. And, uh, you know, but we didn't really know what it would be about. <laughs> and we sort of, you know, oh, we should really write that book. And then it was uh, four years ago on my 54th birthday, I was walking in the high country, and I, which I like to do on my birthday, all-day hikes, and it just occurred to me, you know, I should start writing him letters. So I actually started writing him letters uh, initially about all the stuff that I thought he did very well as a father, because that's something he had not ever heard from me. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, over time, they just sort of morphed into this... Um, process. I mean, certainly we did not get this wonderful idea and then carry it out methodically, right? This was very much a serendipitous discovery for us, that this whole process. So we could certainly not have written the book um, the way we did. We, we didn't plan it this way. We were, we were actually as surprised, very, very surprised by the results as much as, um, you know, well, you because a lot, of those res- a lot of those results were that the more we did it, the more we told each other the stories, the closer we became. And 
the more, I think, courage we had in revealing to each other things that weren't, weren't all that great. That, uh, I mean, we really had to talk about the way we had hurt each other, the way we betrayed each other. And that became more and more possible as we were, as we just uh, were more honest in telling our stories. Well, and you know, there. you can you feel that in the book. You can feel that as you progress. The other yeah. thing that you can feel, even in the beginning, is the love between the two of you that you were having a hard time getting to. But it's it's always there. Sure. I mean, love's the easy part, right? I mean, <laughs> we loved each other. We just didn't like each other. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's halfway ever after that's the bitch, right? I mean, fall yeah. in love is easy. Oh, you can say that here. Uh, oh, I can? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's a relief. <laughs> it's allowed. So, yeah, how, you know, how did you choose your stories? Because, you know, in some parallel kinds of books, you have a question and both of you answer it, but you told the stories that were important to you for the other one to read, and, and you didn't go parallel with a question at a time, which I, I loved I loved that. Well, How did you decide what you were going to write? Well, in, in a way, it was easy, because we started off, and we started off at and Gifford talking about you know how hard how harsh I was on him and everything else and and then he asked me this the, the obvious question that why were you that way why why in the world were you were you picking on me and 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 uh, trying to make me a man and work and all those things you don't even believe in why were you doing that so then I had to go back and tell him that you know Gift. This, I had a civil war in myself about who I was, and I was projecting all that off onto you. And I said, now, there are certain things that hurt me that I've never really been able to, to overcome uh, entirely. And so I had to tell him stories about my upbringing, about, about my father and, and, and my mother and places in which they had, had as it were, bequeathed me a lot of, of uh, difficulties to deal with. And, and things were different back then. The, the the kids don't experience today. Well, Gifford, you're not exactly a kid, but you know, even when you were growing up, things were different. Things had shifted by then. But some of it was very strict and very stringent. You know, I remember some of my friends would have to go get a switch off the tree to be spanked with. So you know, they had the trauma of having to go get the limb and then come back and get hit with it. Uh, yeah. Not something that you do today. Child Protective Services would haul you away or take your child. Um, but but you seem to understand each other's stories. Did it make a difference to you, Gifford, when you heard how your father had been raised? Well, of course. I mean, it made a huge difference because, I mean, we got to go back to one of the things my dad said that I think is really key for anyone reading this book and for anyone who wants reproachment or reconciliation with a parent or a child or a, a lover is that we had this set of stories in which I was always the victim and he was always the oppressor. 
And, you know, there was some good basis for that. Some of the stories in the beginning of the book are pretty brutal. He was really dickhead to me, you know, a lot. Um, but what I certainly never realized is there's a moment later in the book that I talk about where um, I walked in uh, to my son's room one day. Uh, he was maybe, I don't know, 12 or 13, and he was playing a video game, and he dropped the controller. He hopped up on the bed, and he gave me a big hug. He said, Dad, I love you. You're the greatest, you know? And, oh, man, that lit me up like a thousand-watt bulb. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, that's all the way there for me, right, when that happens. There's nothing better, right? And I realized, and it occurred to me, I never gave that to my dad. Right. I was always sniping for him. I was always cutting him down. I was always being snide and sarcastic and rude and mean. I would not let him take pictures of me. He's got about nine years where the only pictures he's got of me is I've got my middle finger extended. Okay. <laughs> so the, the whole point of this is that um, I was absolutely as much at fault or as much uh, a, neither of us was really at fault, right? But we were each perpetuating it. I was just as cruel to him as he was to me, and in some ways more, right? And when I came to realize that, so the stories made, when you hear a good story well told, it, it exposes a truth which admits of no equivocation. It admits of no negotiation. You can't negotiate with that truth, right? I mean, as long as we were talking back and forth and I say, well, I, you left me when I was a teenager in this horrible place. And he says, yeah, but I couldn't get along with your mother and I had to find myself. We're like competing. Whose pain is worse? Is my, is, was my abandonment pain worse than your guilt at leaving me? You know, what would have happened? But when you get that story, and it's well told, I don't, my reaction to it is different. I go into this atavistic, ancient human state where his story, I just take in the story. I take on that sacred role of the listener, or I take on the sacred role of the storyteller. And it moves those stories into, out of the realm of the routine and the profane, into that of the ritual and the sacred. And so when you hear that story about someone, in many ways, hearing those stories let me know him for the first time in my life. So I'm not sure that answers your question. Or not. Oh, it, it answers it very well. And on that note, we're going to go to break. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Sam and Gifford Keene, talking about fathers and sons. There'll be more, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. When you think of inspiring women, who comes to mind? Is it a visionary like Oprah Winfrey? Political or legal figures like Hillary Clinton or Sonia Sotomayor? Or how about entrepreneurial business leaders like Meg Whitman? No matter whom you might be thinking of, make sure to add one more to that list. Deanne DeMarco. She's the host of Today's Inspiring Women. Each week, Deanne turns you on to the next rising star in business and leadership and what their successes and challenges have been. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? 
Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are tuned in to The Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is theselfimprovementblog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to The Self-Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to The Self-Improvement Show. My guests today are Sam and Gifford Keene. We're talking about fathers and sons in their remarkable book, Prodigal Father, Wayward Son, A Roadmap to Reconciliation. And I urge all of you, if you're fathers or sons, to get this book. Please, you will be so glad you did. We've been talking about how in the book they told stories. So I'm going to ask them to tell a story. Gifford, I think the story you want to tell comes at the earlier part of the book. So why don't you go first uh, on your story? So um, one of the stories I wanted to ask, one of the things I wanted to ask my dad about was, you know, he, he was pretty rough on me. And there was this one experience we had that sort of became an emblematic story for our entire family, actually, for our family dynamic, but particularly between myself and my dad. It was one of these sort of things that would come up at Thanksgivings or family gatherings, and everyone would sort of laugh, ha-ha, you know, isn't that funny? Um, But it always left us feeling bad. And so it was one of the stories I wanted to tell, and when I wrote it down, it came out very different than I had remembered it. And this is the story. We used to um, pack up the VW van every summer and go off to somewhere, you know, exotic. Although, you know, if you live in Louisville, Kentucky, almost anywhere is exotic. So, um, and one day we were camped, uh, parked off the side of the interstate in a little wooded grove uh, having a picnic. And we finished the picnic, and my mom went off into the woods to pee, and where everything is fine. It's a nice warm day. And suddenly my dad calls me, Gift, come over here. And uh, I already know I'm in trouble. Uh, and I'm like, you know, and so I come over, and he's pointing, and there, laying behind the back wheel of the VW van, is this partially eaten uh, hard boiled egg. My dad says, hey, You know, we don't waste food. Why did you throw your egg back there? You know, and I, um, I said, well, I didn't. You know, I ate all my eggs. Don't lie. Lie, you know, be a man. Admit when you're wrong. I mean, just, and, and pretty soon, he's just lost it. His tendons are standing out in his neck. He's channeling the wrath of God. I'm just <laughs> freaked out and crying like crazy, you know. And he makes me eat the egg. You know, ants, dirt, the whole thing. Eats the eating this egg, choking, sobbing. There's children starving in India, you know. And um, so I uh, I eat the egg, and 
then, and I'm saying, no, no, I didn't. You know, just ask mom. A few minutes later, my mom comes back on the scene. My sister is, of course, standing petrified by the side of the van. You know, and my, my mom says, no, I saw Gifford eat his egg. It must be whale. You know? And uh, so I wait for, you know, lightning to strike my sister. But instead, my dad just sort of mumbles something, sort of cranks at my mom, and we get back in the van. And he never even said he was sorry. And um, which a man, by the way, always says he's sorry, which is one if he's wrong. It's something I was taught by my father that I passed on to my kids. You know, admit when you're wrong, say you're sorry. Uh, and for, I don't know, 40 years, uh, 45 years, however it was, I always sort of cherished this story as a, uh, again, as an uh, example of how he was an oppressor, how I was a victim, how he had done me wrong and didn't even apologize, right? I, I made him eat that egg 190 times in the yeah, last years. At least. And, hang on a second. Let me finish. But the <laughs> thing that didn't, until I wrote the story, the thing that came to me, I wrote it, and I, I came up with a much more basic question. Not why did you do me wrong? I, I said, you know, as a father myself, what the heck were you thinking? You know, losing your shit over a five-cent egg against a five-year-old. What were you thinking? Right? And so I asked him that. And that led to a whole set of other stories. So that's one example whereby, you know, I say in one part of the book, when we look back at these stories, these sort of spectral stories that have informed our relationship, we never got past that egg. You know, we never did. It was always there between us. And then when I actually told it in a ritual way instead of a routine way, um, I realized this is a really weird story, right? And I don't actually recognize any of the people in it. So uh, that's one example of how the storytelling can open a dialogue and change your perspective. Sam, do you want to make any comments about the egg story? Why didn't you apologize? Well, I was I was uh, playing out the role of a man who was supposed to be, you know, the head of the family, and people were supposed to. Uh, he made the rules, and and people, and, and he was supposed to enforce them. And and uh, my attitude was, all right, maybe he did, maybe that wasn't his egg, maybe he wasn't lying, but damn it, he's lied enough. <laughs> <laughs> He, you know, he he's lied enough. So if I didn't catch him this time, I I could have caught him another one. So the egg story could cover all of his transgressions. Yeah, the before egg story. and after. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and I'm sure for him it was exactly the same thing. That uh, that you know I w- I was the tyrant over many many things, <laughs> many times. I think probably every family has their own form of the egg story. But I I hope they start diminishing a little bit. I thought the egg story was was very telling. Sam, what's what's one of your favorite stories in the book? Well, I'm going to link two of them. Okay. Uh, Gifford Gifford was hurt more than anything, even as, as a child. It went later on when I... I left the family. I ran off with a young woman and left the family and uh, uh, left him in uh, in uh, Prescott, Arizona. And he had a very, very, very hard time. And uh, I didn't want to hear about his pain. I did not want to hear about it. And I had to, uh, so when I began to tell him stories about what was going on in my life then, and uh, 
uh, I had to admit that I had hurt him, that I had been callous, that I had, that I had, I had in a way betrayed him by leaving him, leaving the family. Not, not the divorce. I mean, the divorce may or may not have been a good idea, but certainly, um, I should have taken him with me, and I had to tell him, I had to tell him how ashamed I was that I did not take him with me. That was not an easy thing to do. So I had to acknowledge the ways in which I really had hurt him and stop defending myself and, and having, oh, well, I did it because I had to do it, I had to be free and all that. So that's one story. The other story is how, did, how things changed totally. And uh, I, I had been in Iran. I went to Iran to do a, a little uh, diplomatic mission thing. And when I was there, I fell, hit my head on a iron railing, and uh, in, in short, in three weeks, I developed a, a subdural hematoma. And I had to have three different surgeries to resolve that. Well, after that, Gifford came over from uh, from uh, New Mexico and uh, just came into to my my room and said, "I'm here. I'm going to stay here." Not without some ambivalence on your part. That's right. Yeah, I, 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 that's that's right. And then one day we took a walk, and I was sitting on a log, and Gifford said, "Well, you know, there's no way to say this except whatever I thought I had against you, the statue of limitations has run out." Well, I can still hardly tell that story. It's so moving that it was just a here he was saying, "I forgive you." I forgive you. And now he was forgiving me for real things I'd done, not that he'd imagined that I'd done, but I had done. Uh, I was guilty of the thing, guilty as charged, and he was forgiving me. And that a kind of disarmament where he says, look, I'm not going to keep this story up. I'm not going to keep up the story that you're a bad guy and that you, I'm not going to do that. And, you know, that, that points out the way in which our telling of these stories got to a place where we had compassion for each other and where real forgiveness came. And once real forgiveness came, we could tell each other anything. I mean, there was, that, that, after that, there was no, nothing to hide. That was a very powerful part of the book. I have to confess, it made me cry. Uh, it, it really touched my heart because it was so real. Um, there, there, there's nothing fake or phony in your book that I can find. It is well, just more than that, real. one of the differences is that fi- Fire in the Belly was a very good analysis of manhood in the society. So, but this book is vulnerable. This isn't about something about manhood. This is about us, and we don't pull any punches. And so I think you do have that sense that, that uh, this is a different kind of animal. And Sam, you came a long way to get to that point. Um, for you, I would think being vulnerable may not have been that comfortable for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying to, to phrase it nicely. <laughs> I, I guess it wasn't. <laughs> Heroes don't repent. <laughs> no, I guess they We've don't. heard it a lot. A real, a real man never says, I'm sorry. He doesn't cry either. Doesn't ever have have to say you're sorry, right? No, he doesn't eat quiche. The dumbest words ever said about love is, love means never having to say you're sorry. Oh, I agree with that. 
and and the nine the nine most powerful words was I was wrong. What was it? Let's see. I was wrong. Uh, I'm missing three of them. Oh, I, I was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Now, yeah. That's the formula. That's the formula that gets you to speaking the truth with each other. Say it again, Sam. I was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Powerful, powerful, powerful words. Looking back, you know, it, you can't look back and change anything. But what oh, would you yes, tell? Oh, yes, you can. Oh, can no, 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 no. That's exactly the point. You, can you can't change, change what happened, but you can change the way you react to it now. You can't yeah. change the incident. The well, I don't know. Way. I mean, I guess that I had a very, very strong feeling that this book did change the past. Because what do we have of the past? A friend of mine once told me that after you're 25, everyone's responsible for their own childhood. Because all you have of your past are the stories you tell, and you're the one telling them. Right? So what is memory? What is the past but the story we, stories we tell? So in a lot of these incidents, yeah, the basic facts, if there were a, um, you know, movie taken of the time, I think we've all had that fantasy that there's a movie running of our lives and we could go back and, to any moment and see what really happened. And you're right. The actual facts or words that were spoken or things that happened, that doesn't change. But those are relatively unimportant. When we change the way we interpret the key myths that have shaped our relationships in one of the most real possible ways, it absolutely changes the past. It changes, I mean, you just feel all these things inside you that you thought were true just drop away. And, and you know, a lot of times we came to the spot where it's like, well, geez, I guess I don't know what really happened. I guess I don't really know who my father was, you know, and not knowing who he was or is, is a precondition, right? For discovering. It's a precondition for discovering. So, I mean, I know what you're saying. And of course, factually, you're right. You can't change the past, but in all the ways that matter, you absolutely can change the past. And that's the entire point of this book. And I totally agree with that. It seems that as you wrote this book, as you were reading each other's stories, that issue after issue was resolved in that process. You know, not before you wrote the book, but while you wrote the book. There's a a different feeling at the end than there was in the beginning. You know, yes, absolutely. You know, it, it was really quite remarkable to me how you put the feeling of that change in that book. It it softened, I guess is what I want to say, as we went along. Did you soften as as you went along in this book, both of you? Absolutely. No, I can't remember when when the house uh, building, was that before or after your head injury, Sam? The what? The ha- building the house, was that before or after your head injury? That was... Uh, before, many years, before, actually. Yeah. The house building was. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. the house building was 
a really an, an amazing experience because you turned into the leader, didn't you, Gifford, for a while? You were the one who had to say the tables were turned. Yeah, I mean, I had I had worked as in construction for a long time. My dad called me up. That was actually a sort of a foreshadowing of what we came to in the book. It seems like a, a mini epiphany. Yeah, it was it was a sort of brief moment of grace that was granted to us. Oh, maybe even ten years before we started the book, right? Um, I I had just gotten out of college. In fact, I was um. I was just uh, barely 30 during that time, and I came out there for, oh, what was it, eight weeks, 12 weeks? Something like that, yeah. And uh, we just had this, you know, sort of grace-given period where everything went well, and we had a lot of fun together, and a lot of our old stuff didn't show up. And part of it was because of the role reversal, and I think part of it was just, the archetypal beauty of a father and a son building a house for the father together. I mean, what a great thing, you know. Beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah. Sam, you started some men's groups. Um, I, I want to know a little bit about that. And was part of the reason you started it to ha- help men through some of the things that you'd already experienced? No, that's way too, that's way too uh, exalted. Is it? <laughs> okay. Unexalted. I, I, I didn't start a edge group. Several of us did. Uh, and we were actually, that actually went for about 20 years. And it was, we were trying to get our, largely our relationships with women straight. Oh, but, that'll uh, never happen. <laughs> but uh, it has an important part of the house. Um, I didn't have enough money to finish the house. I couldn't put the shingles on it or anything like that. And, and the septic system, I didn't have... And uh, so I wrote an outline of a book I would write called Faces, uh, called uh, Fire in the Belly. And damn if they didn't give me 35000 so that meant I had 17000 up front, and I could put in the septic system. <laughs> well, you've so, got to love that. So then I had to write the book. <laughs> and I did, and it became, you know, it became immensely successful. It sold uh, uh, over half a million copies. So. Oh, I remember when it came out, everybody was talking about it. I didn't read it because it was for men. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. We no, have strange thinking sometimes. I should read your book. Uh, here's a question that kind of plagues me. Can a modern man, can a man in, in our era, and this is in your book, how can you fully dedicate yourself to the career, and you say, without, like Abraham, sacrificing his firstborn? How how do you do this whole career thing and still be able to be the kind of father you want to be? How do, how do you manage that? Well, I don't think that you can. Um you know, I mean, it depends on what your career is and it depends on how you look sure. at it. You know, I, I was involved for a while, uh, first as a software engineer, then a software executive, uh, then in startup company. And that kind of career, if you want to have that kind of career, then you absolutely sacrifice your family like, like Abraham. You know, the, and the, the bitch god of the corporation demands absolutely no less. Right, And each time you get a raise, each time you get a perk, each time you get a bonus, you pay for it with a piece of your soul. 
and they make sure that's how it works. And, you know, my dad once said to me, when did you know you'd sold out, right? I said, it's not like that. You know, if Faust ever showed up and said, you know, sign here on the line, it would be easy. But it's more like, um, you know, if you yes. put a frog in boiling water, it jumps out. But if you put it in a pan and slowly heat it, um, then it will just stay there till it boils. It doesn't never never knows when. To, and that was sort of how I felt in my corporate career. And I was fortunate enough to make enough money. And I had this Silicon Valley thing that I was able to buy a bunch of real estate. And I quit my job. And then I spent the next two. It's been almost ten years. You know, being primarily a father and homeschooling my kids and spending a lot of time with them. My greatest achievement as a father was I spent probably 400 days on the beach with my kids Um, over the course of seven years, six or seven years. And, you know, um, that's my greatest achievement as a person. In some ways, you know, I loved it. They loved it. But And that created a bond between me and my children that I could not have had had I stayed in the corporate world. So I think it's a structural problem in our society. I mean, you ask what a man is, and we're always taught that a man is a hedge fund manager. He's a doctor. He's a lawyer. He's a politician. He's powerful. He's rich. And the dark side of that is that he is going to be a rotten father, right? Because He has no time to be anything else. Of course not. And your kids... The thing that you want with your kids most and the thing they want with you, and what I did not have with my father when I was a child, was time to play. And it's what we need as adults. So I think that, you know, I was incredibly fortunate in that I got to experience both of those. My my wife likes to say to me, uh, you can have it all, just not all at once. (laughs) Not all at once. Wise woman. We're oh, right at the end of the woman. show, and I really hate to say that because I would love to talk to the two of you for a very long time. But what's the thought you'd like to leave with the listeners today? Sam, what about you? What What would you say to fathers and sons? Tell each other your stories. Yeah, tell each other your stories. Tell them who Give you are. Them. Tell them the things that you're ashamed to tell them. Tell them things you're proud to tell them. But... Talk back and forth. Learn to talk. Learn to tell the stories. Yeah, and and I think that I mean that's that's the thought I would have too. But don't just talk back and forth, right? I think that what we learned because we tried talking back and forth. We went to psychiatrists and we said, "And how did you feel about that when it happened?" But you know, well, I'm not going to tell you in front of him. <laughs> well. And the burden of that guilt and pain is too strong. You know, the, uh-huh. the, the talk therapy stuff just engages the defenses and the conversations over before it starts. So don't just talk to each other. Tell your stories and tell them as a story, as if you were reading or writing a story. Set the scene. When I was a young man, we lived here and this is, and then tell the story the best way you know how as a full story with a beginning, middle, and end, take some time. And then, as I say, it becomes this atavistic ritual sort of thing that has its own truth, right? And you can't help but see the truth. And we were lucky because we're writers. We're both writers. So we would write these things and send them off. But um, 
you know, so tell the stories as real stories, not just as talking back and forth. And, uh, and you, you always know about that because there's, there's some object or something in the middle. You want the story, the egg. The egg is that story. You, you want uh, the other story, another story, it's uh, me sitting on a log and, and you coming over. Or there are stories there about uh, uh, ridiculous things that I did that made Gifford laugh. But it's always concrete. It's not, uh, like Gifford says, it's not, not, not a generalization. I hate to say it, but we, are, we have reached the end. I am so grateful to both of you for being so open, so vulnerable in your book, because I know you're helping so many people. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for Thank having you. us. This is Irene Conlon and my guest, Sam and Gifford Keene, saying thank you so much for being with us today. Come back next week for more of the Self-Improvement Show. Thank you again for joining Dr. Irene Conlon for the Self-Improvement Show. Please listen again next Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Remember that improvement out there starts in here.